Hey, hey everyone. My name is Agnes Chen and this is a Rise Resilient podcast where we gather and connect so that all can rise resilient. What do you think of when you think of a prisoner? How would you feel knowing your neighbor, that mom, dad, or child had once been incarcerated? In this episode of Rise Resilient, I hope to challenge the assumptions we may have of those whose circumstances have led them to the prisons, the corners, and the margins of our communities, and instead open our hearts and eyes to see and understand a person first. I am extremely grateful for today's conversation with Fritzi Horstman, the director and founder of the Compassion Prison Project, who is generous not only with her time, but also with her vulnerability and sharing her own story of resilience during today's conversation. Fritzi Horstman is a producer and post-producer on dozens of television projects and documentaries, is a Grammy award-winning producer for her work on The Defiant Ones, and most recently has committed her heart to shining a bright light on a taboo topic, prisons, to ensure we can bring compassion to the men, women, and children living in prisons today. More than anything, she encourages us to see our shared humanity when considering the needs of those within our prison system. Needs such as love, connection, understanding, and forgiveness, all of which the margins, corners, and prisons of life simply can't provide. As Fritzi Horstman reminds us in this episode, we are all magnificent, and supporting another in knowing this truth can help them be able to rise resilient. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you, Fritzi? I'm good. Oh, I'm just so excited to chat with you. Me too. So much great things are happening and, you know, just it's, I'm really grateful to be able to keep talking about what we're doing. So I thought I would first share um, how I learned about your organization. So I first heard about the Compassion Prison Project, which is your baby, when I came across your first documentary PSA, which is a short but incredibly powerful six minute video clip called Step Inside the Circle, which refers for anyone who's watched it to the circle of compassion where we see you talking to a group of 235 men at a California maximum security prison where they learn about what I imagine is the first time about how trauma specifically how adverse childhood experiences have impacted them and mostly what I find so incredible and beautiful and really powerful is we really see you focus on the humanity in each of these individuals and in the shared humanity between you and the individuals in this prison. Can you tell us and share your journey of what brought you to creating and putting so much energy and emotional investment into the Compassion Prison Project? So it's so great to be here, Agnes, and um, to talk about the thing that, that wakes me up every morning thinking about, and I go to bed thinking about, and it's, it drives me and 
just the idea that there are men and women sitting in prison right now being abused and abusing themselves and abusing each other. Um, it breaks my heart and, and it doesn't have to be that way. And so the thing that started me on this journey, um, I found out I was traumatized. I was having coffee with my friend who's a psychologist and, you know, I casually mentioned that, um, my mother used to abuse me as a child and, First thing he said was, I'm so sorry, which is the thing that I, whenever I hear about the, the imaginal, unimaginable abuse that's been handed down through, through slavery and abuse, um, that's the first thing I say is, I'm so sorry, because it acknowledges that what happened is not what should be happening in our society and, and in, in our relationships. And then my husband's friend went to visit a maximum security prison through a an organization called Hustle 2.0. And I reluctantly signed up when I found that their recidivism rate was like around 5% as opposed to about 50 to 60% in the United States right now. So something they were doing was right. And I wanted to find out more. So um, September 18th, 2018, I walked into a maximum security prison. And as I was being escorted into um, the yard, I noticed there were no trees in in the whole facility. And I, I said to the person es escorting us, I said, where are the trees? And he says, well, we got to keep a sight line in case someone escapes and um, walked in the door. Um, I was greeted by men wearing uh, Hawaiian lays and they were yelling welcome um, and cheering for us as, as myself and a bunch of volunteers walked in. And immediately my perceptions of, oh, these people are bad or these people are, um, you know, they're no good. They belong here evaporated immediately. And as I got to hear their stories in that day, I realized that, you know, I have eight adverse childhood experiences and the stories I was hearing were similar to mine and the shared humanity that I experienced in that, in that day, in, in those eight hours literally ch changed my life. And um, and I, you know, I, I asked the, the organizer, I said, okay, I'm in whatever we have to do. What are we doing? And I'm, when are we coming back? And she said, uh, we're coming back in six months. And when I heard that, I thought, okay, um, I got to figure something out because six months is too long. And this is urgent. This is something we, we have to figure out. And I reread my journal recently and I saw that in my journal, it said, I have an obligation. So it was, it wasn't just a, um, a calling, it was an obligation. And so I pivoted and wrote some wacky curriculum, which I basically tossed the first week I walked in there and figured out what the men needed. And what the, what I found out is that these 35 men that I ended up working with needed to be seen, they needed to be loved, they needed to be cared for. And, um, and I haven't looked back. You know, how, how as you're going through this and, and putting in this emotional investment, how are you remaining hopeful? Things are changing. There's like a, there's a lift in our consciousness where we know better now. We know about trauma. We know about um, addiction. We know what, what things cause this and the adverse childhood experiences. Thank you, Dr. Folletti. Thank you, Dr. Anda for creating that test. Even though it, it's only 10 questions, it really puts in stark relief 
64% of Americans have at least one ACE. And I believe it's probably 80%. I don't know where these numbers come from, but I, I believe there's, you know, and then there's other trauma like racial trauma, homelessness. Um, I spoke with Minnesota, the federal pretrial judges and probation officers, and they're actually really interested in the whole notion of trauma-informed um, prisons. And I'm also creating a document um, a document to present to correctional officers to create trauma-informed corrections where we'll provide training for the men and women who are on the front lines. They're first responders and they need to respond though. It's not, not first reactors. And that's, um, that's true for our police department as well. What is the ACEs study? The term Adverse Childhood Experiences, or ACEs, comes from the 1998 Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, the ACEs Study, where Dr. Robert Anda and Dr. Vincent Felitti assess the connection between toxic stress caused by early adversity and the impact it may have on an individual's social, mental, and physical well-being. The study examined the prevalence of 10 types of childhood adversity, including abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. These included physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, physical and emotional neglect, and household dysfunction like domestic violence, parental mental illness, parental substance use, and losing a parent to death or divorce. Researchers then assigned an A score to each participant by adding up the number of adversities from the 10 listed to receive an A score out of 10. What they found was pretty profound. ACEs, abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction is extremely common. 67% of individuals had experienced one or more, and 13% had four or more. In a class of 30 students, this translates to 24 students having experienced at least one ACE, and approximately seven will have experienced four to five forms of adverse childhood experiences. The other thing, they found that ACEs rarely occurred in isolation. If you had experienced one ACE, you were 87% likely to have experienced two or more. The second result they found was that in the absence of protective factors, the toxic stress, the intense, frequent, or sustained stress without a buffer, ACEs could be incredibly pervasive and depending on the timing of occurrence, can actually change a child's brain and body. These changes to the brain and nervous system specifically can disrupt learning and behavior, increase an individual's risk of cognitive impairment, attention deficits, learning disabilities, hyperactivity, self-regulation, memory and attention, and increased risk for anxiety and depression. For example, a person with four or more ACEs is 12.2 times as likely to attempt suicide, 10.3 times as likely to use injection drugs, and 7.4 times as likely to be an alcoholic. The ACEs study boldly states that preventing ACEs could reduce the number of adults with depression by 44%. Since the original 1998 study, the research has been replicated all over the world with similar results, and we now know that the toxic stress from chronic poverty and systemic racism can impact the brain in the same way. One thing to remember though, increased risk does not mean destiny. Our brain has the ability to rewire throughout life 
And despite early adversity that has our brain wired for protection, nurturing, supportive, and healthy relationships, experiences, and environments can rewire us for connection. This ability our brain has to rewire throughout life is called neuroplasticity, just a fancy word for hope. Of course, it becomes harder to rewire our brains as we get older, but it is never impossible. So Fritzy, right now you have two documentary PSAs. The first one is called Step Inside the Circle, as I mentioned earlier, and then you have another one called The Honor Yard. Is there more coming? What can we expect? Can you give us a little bit of information about the documentaries? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, what we've decided because of COVID, we were going to be filming all year long and that's ended and um, probably another year is going to go by. So we've decided to just uh, focus on Step Inside the Circle as its own piece. And that'll be a, that's a short film we're applying to Sundance and, um, and Honor Yard is another piece um, equally wonderful. It really focuses of trauma. And then the other one that we may create, you know, after all of this, after the, the awards thing goes through, we, after we try for all that, then we'll work on um, the forgiveness piece. Cause during that day there were three things we did. We, we did the circle stepping inside the circle. And then we read the symptoms of trauma and had the men read all the symptoms of trauma so that they could know what trauma does to you, what, you know, that you're hypervigilant, that you're depressed, that you, you know, you have an inability to love and inability to connect. Um, you know, you reenact the trauma, you have nightmares. Um, the list goes on and on. And it's important to know. So as you start becoming more aware of that, that you're traumatized, it's important to know what the symptoms are. So you can say, oh, that's happening. And, you know, awareness is so key. And so the third one is the forgiveness one. And um, that's when we do Ho'oponopono in the, in the circle. And we ask for forgiveness um, to those we harmed, to those who harmed us, and to ourselves. And um, I guess we give forgiveness to those who harmed us. But it's also, it doesn't really matter because it's all, it's all a circle. It's a circle. If you, forgive, if you can forgive yourself, you can forgive everybody. And what, yeah, what, what did you call that? Can you say it's it again? a Ho'oponopono and it's from Hawaii. And I forgot the name of the man, but he was a doctor at a mentalist institution. And he would look at the files of the men and women that were living there. And he wouldn't even interact with them. He would just look at their files, imagine what they've been through. And he it's, it's, four phrases and I, there's different ways, different sequences, but it's, I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. And you just say it again and again. I love you. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. So to start, I, I can't get over the fact that you started this specific project only in 2018 and I've already created something so beautiful and impactful. However, it sounds like this was a journey that was in the making long before 2018. So thank you for sharing that. Um, just to lean in a little bit on your story and the adversity or the trauma that you endured, Fritzi. You know, we see in the first PSA, Step Inside the Circle, we see one gentleman, you know, say, I'm a traumatized child who was raised by a traumatized child. And we see another gentleman who, you know, um, who's an adult, a grown man, wipe away his tears as 
um, individuals are sharing parts of their story. And then you see another gentleman who's in his 70s, a senior, who, you know, who says this has been the greatest day of my life. Um, I know for me and the experiences I had growing up, many of which are similar to yours, finding out about the ACE study 10 years ago really validated many of my feelings and experiences in quite a profound way. And to be honest, put me on a new trajectory of healing. What role did the experiences and the feelings you had growing up play in the motivation and eagerness to create awareness of ACEs for these individuals and really to create transformation for them? Well, that's such a great question because when I read this book, The Body Keeps the Score by by Bessel van der Kolk, yeah, I had the, the epiphany that my behavior had, had was rooted in trauma. And if that was true for me, that was true for every man and woman that are living in prison. And basically what, which is true for most of the people in the United States, our behavior is, is really, um, we're all in fight or flight. Honestly, if you look at Mm -hmm. the way we respond to, um, the election cycle or how we respond to criminality, how we respond to addiction, we, we don't really know how to deal with it. And when, when the body's in fight or flight, the prefrontal cortex, the executive function, the, the place where we make moral decisions, where we make good decisions, where we make uh, logical decisions, go out the window. So what does that say about how we're informed when we're voting? How does that say how we're informed when we're raising our children or we're, um, we're arresting somebody or we're running a prison? Um, we're all in a reactive mode. And until we can be able to respond to situations instead of react to them, we're not going to make good decisions. And that's what I was doing being a traumatized girl with eight adverse childhood experiences. And that's what the men and women living and working in prison are doing. And that's the, that's the part of the, the piece that we're still not, you still don't know about, but it's called the compassion prison project, which means we're helping people in prison, people that are working there and people that are living there because Everybody right now is in a state of fight or flight in prison. And mm-hmm. until we bring that down to a place where we can activate our prefrontal cortex, create a, a place of safety and uh, well-being, there is no healing and there is just recidivism. So, you know, unless we really are focused on keeping the prison system active and in, in you know, in the way it is. Um, we need to do some drastic measures immediately. 95% of the men and women living in prison will be returned to us. So the question is, how do we want them returned to us? Do we want them homeless, living on the streets, unable to feed themselves? Or do we want them thriving and leaders and creating, uh, healing their communities and creating jobs and creating opportunities? I mean, that's the option. Those are the options. And they're both available and easily done. Um, and we've seen what the first option has left us with, with our own sense of, of disappointment in ourselves. Because when you see a homeless person, that's the work of all of us. That's our collective work together. We've created this situation and, and we can, we can change the situation. Yes, Fritzi, that's, um, that's super powerful. Um, one, one question just as you're talking and I'm listening, you know, 
within my personal experiences and professional, be it with law enforcement officers, healthcare workers, first responders, um, something I would often find really frustrating was the lack of awareness of the impacts trauma could have on the behaviors of those we are supporting. For example, the prisoners um, with the Compassion Prison Project or our patients in a healthcare setting. And the hope is to really increase this awareness and create that emotional safety that many people need. In the work that you're doing with the Compassion Prison Project, have you noticed a change in how the prison staff responds to the prisoners? Not, not overtly. Um, that's the work we're doing right now. And the, the vision is trauma-informed prisons mm-hmm. in three years. Um, and, and in five years, and you know, I'm, I'm actually, I'm really going to push for healing centers instead of prisons in three years. Yes. But if I have to take, if I have to accept trauma-informed prisons, I will, um, trauma-informed prisons understands that every man and woman working and living in that environment is traumatized, everyone. Um, And from that place, we, we are informed what a trigger looks like and we don't take it personally. And we learn how to respond to these, these activating, you know, trigger responses instead of react to them. Because when we react Suddenly, somebody's being thrown in the shoe for the next 10 years. When we react, somebody's getting their head bashed. When we react, um, you know, people commit suicide and people um, are dr- become drug addicts and people go home and they abuse their families. And those are the things that, that, this, that this system actually condones. Um, and, or, or, or at least in, enforces in a way that, you know, silence, every, what happens on the yard stays on the yard and mm-hmm. we need accountability. We need transparency, but we also need to bring a whole, um, cavalry of mental health, um, applications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's this idea of, you know, people can have consequences without removing and stripping them of their dignity at the same time, knowing these experiences they've had. Um, exactly. Yeah. And, and also just to mention that the life expectancy of a, of a correctional officer is 59 years old, is 59 years. And that presents um, similar on the adverse childhood experience uh, test. If you have six or more ACEs, you also lose uh, 20 years of your life. So that, that kind of lets us know what kind of toxic stress that environment is creating in, in these poor bodies, both mm-hmm. on both sides of the bars. Um, and hypervigilance is not a state. It's great when you are running from a bear, but it, it does not, we don't need this um, in an, an environment where there's, where people are really should be healing instead of being punished. What is executive functioning? Executive function and self-regulation skills are the mental processes that enable us to plan, focus, remember instructions, perform multiple tasks successfully, filter distractions, prioritize tasks, set and achieve goals, and control impulses. It's an important one. But children aren't born with these skills. They are born with the potential to develop them. If children do not get what they need from their relationships with the adults and the conditions in their environment, or worse, if those influences are sources of toxic stress, 
such as with abuse, addiction, or mental illness in the home, or witnessing domestic violence. Their skill development can be seriously delayed or impaired, and toxic stress can disrupt brain architecture and impair the development of executive function. How does this happen? Well, as Fritzi mentioned, when we are stressed, we are in what's called fight or flight mode. And when we need to fight or run off because our body senses danger or our needs aren't met, there is no need or time to think. So the thinking part of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, shuts off. Now, if we keep needing to shut off our prefrontal cortex, as the old saying goes, use it or lose it. We end up strengthening our lower brain where that important fight or flight response fires from, and we weaken our prefrontal cortex, that incredibly important thinking brain. Now, fun fact, the prefrontal cortex doesn't actually come online until we are about six or seven years old, which explains why our kids are mostly all emotion. And the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed until we are 25. In any case, providing the support that children need to build these skills at home and within the community is one of society's most important responsibilities. So Fritzi, I know in the beginning you talked about how you were sitting with your psychologist friend and that was the moment you found out that you what you had experienced growing up was trauma and how it had impacted your body and your behaviors. Um, I had a very similar experience when I first heard about the adverse childhood experience study 10 years ago, and it was really profound and allowed me to move forward, um, you know, and release the chains of my childhood. How, you know, we see in the first PSA, you shouting out the 10 different forms of childhood adversity, um, and you see the gentlemen moving forward for each one that they had experienced. What kind of reactions have you had from these individuals really, you know, having the space to talk about their experiences, um, to have them validated and to have their feelings validated? What kind of behaviors or what have you been told? Uh, well, the results are are pretty miraculous. Um, with the 35 men that I worked in, um, two of them have given up heroin, their heroin addiction. And wow. one of them revoked his DNR, which is do not resuscitate. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that was those, that's kind of like the, the stark, the stark, uh, results, but other results we have, you know, I did a before and after quiz and not quiz, but questionnaire. And I asked them, you know, how's, do you, what do you like about it? And they say, it's the best program we've ever had. Um, because it gets to the root causes, the root causes and, it also gets to the, the, the truth that every man, woman, and child on this planet is perfect. And we were born perfect. And we were told a lie that we are, that we are, are bad. And we've been working our way, trying to prove that we have value ever since. When actually the truth is, if we just slow down and listen, we can remember we can remember that we are divine, that we are perfect. And, and now it's just a matter of uncovering and, you know, showing, showing the way, showing the way of this perfection. Um, I got a letter from a man in Texas the other day and um, it makes me cry, but he, he spent his, his, until he was 18, he was wetting the bed 
Mm. And his mother, his mother never changed. She changed the sheets once a month. So he was sleeping in urine his entire life. And he went to school smelling of urine and, you know, he's working, right. He said, he wrote to me and said that he's working on forgiving his mother and his, he and his mother are talking and they're, you know, they're uncovering, you know, this history of abuse and neglect and annihilation. And when we hear stories like that, and, and, and he went on and on about, he was shamed and, and humiliated and, and beaten. Um, when we hear stories like that, we have as a society, we have to stop and think, okay, okay. First off, what's my part in this? And my part in this is we've allowed poverty to be, to proliferate and to, you know, I, there's homeless people in, in Venice beach all over the place. I mean, what is that? Why aren't, why aren't we taking care of the people that need help? What is, what is this, this, this judgment we're having about, about people that don't know how to get their acts together because they're traumatized. I mean, I don't know when you're in fight or flight, can you think clearly? Um, so, and when we hear, when we hear stories like this, we have to remember that if he had someone who cared about him, if he had someone who saw him as a little boy, he wouldn't be in prison because he would have a sense of who he is. You know, we are, as humans, we're, we, we get our sense of who we are reflected back in the eyes of the other. And if those eyes are hollow or, or, you know, depressed or deranged, that's what we're seeing back and we can't see our true nature. And so, you know, it's up to us as a society to lift, to lift the people in prison, to lift the people that are homeless, to lift the people that are suffering in poverty. I mean, that's, that's the, that's the irony. The people who have the most ability to help us are, it's been said that when you, the more money you make, the less empathetic you are. That paradox is, is kind of ingrained in, in our policies and in our, in the way we behave, especially in the United States. Um, so I, I'm really appealing to our prefrontal cortexes in this moment and appealing to our hearts and to really dig down and say, what, if this was my child, if this was my child living in prison, what would I want for him? Um, and I believe the answer would be healing, um, love and grace. I believe that that's really what's up for us as a society. And, um, I really feel that it's also possible. And I, I know people are like, oh, it's going to take a long time to turn the ship around or yeah, well, it's going to take, you know, the, the notion that it's going to take a while, um, in the past two years, I've gotten this film made and over 2 million people have seen it. So that didn't take a long time. And so we're on a trajectory to make this happen. You know, I would say trauma informed prisons, let's say for in two years and then healing centers in three years, I keep, you know, I keep, I don't want it to take any longer because then it'll take longer. So Fritzi, how do you prevent all of this really weighing you down? How do you allow yourself to stay positive. That's why I'm, my diet of social media has, has plummeted because I don't want to be in a state where I'm, I'm angry or where I'm finding reasons to hate somebody. Um, and for those wholehearted people that were never abused and I've, I, my neighbor is a wholehearted person. So I know um, Brene Brown talks about being a wholehearted person 
And those are the angels on the earth because they just see the good in everyone without the judgment because they weren't raised with it. And, but that's possible for all of us, but it's, it, it really takes work to say, Oh, wait a second. I'm judging that person and I'm not being kind. And ultimately when you're judging someone else, you're judging yourself because it's something you haven't looked at in yourself or you haven't integrated, or there's just, you know, there's something missing in your, in your algorithm that isn't allowing you to see that person as the perfect person that they are. You, I I think it's in the second PSA in the honor yard. We see you wearing a shirt that says no shame. You're yelling out no shame. Can you speak to what role shame played in your childhood, whether you recognized it or not? And, and moving forward, kind of as you started to heal, what did that look like? What did, how were you able to lay down your guard so that you really could feel no shame? Um, Well, when you're abused as a child, the information that you get is that you are no good because for Mm -hmm. someone to beat you, there has to be a reason why you've done something wrong. Like that. So it's like the original sin. It's a, it's a, it's kind of like the original sin. It just becomes part of you. And um, shame, shame presented in acting out um, with men. It presented as bulimia, it presented as um, experimenting with drugs and alcohol um, presented with choosing bad boyfriends and, you know, men that weren't, that weren't right for me in the sense of, you know, but they were, I guess they were perfect for me at that time because that's where I was at. But, um, so shame presented in ways, um, that now having worked, worked so hard to get through this, I mean, those choices, I'm, and again, I'm grateful for every choice I made because I'm sitting here right now talking to you and, and, and helping to move this paradigm. But so shame, what I read a book called power versus force. And that's where it really hit me. I saw this chart that David Hawkins uh, created and shame was at the very, excuse me, shame was at the very bottom. It's, it was, it, it, the frequency was a 20 and whereas like Jesus is at a, a thousand, right. And it, 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 it increases exponentially as you go up the, up the, chart. And so I I just kind of started digging around about shame and just seeing, you know, the shame my mother carried, the shame my father carried, my the shame my family carried. We we all carried so much shame and how I didn't want to admit to the world that I was being abused. I didn't want to admit that my, you know, my mother was off her rocker, that my father was an alcoholic, um that I'd been, you know, abused emotionally physically, sexually, I mean, not by my family, but all that, Mm -hmm. all the, all that information from, from the world gets interpreted into, into this little system. And, um, and it, it acts out because it wants to be, you see, we want to be seen as little children. We want to be seen. And if we're not going to be seen for our, our perfection, we're going to be seen for our, you know, for whatever, whatever it's going to take to get some attention, we're going to do it. That's why we have so many actors. <laughs> well, you can live out, live out your, what you want in those moments. Exactly. But I'm, you know, I'm just as guilty of wanting, you know, wanting attention and wanting, and, but, 
but I forgave myself. I forgave myself and I forgave everybody else for their behavior. I've forgiven everybody because who am I to judge them? And I know when I'm in a blind rage, anything is possible. One of the things I love about what you are doing is that, you know, in order to stop the progression of adverse childhood experiences and really to stop the intergenerational transmission of trauma, um, which really starts with each of us recognizing our own childhood adversity as trauma and then having the space to heal that, I feel like that is what you are doing, which is so incredible. Do you have any feedback from family regarding how it has has and how it is impacting them? It's funny. I'm not really allowed to talk to the family members or interact, but um, the letters I've received from the men at Kern Valley, um, they said my, my, you know, 180s for, for a lot of people, my relationship with my family has completely changed. I'm able to talk to my brother. Um, just it's incredible what, what this did for the men um, and in also the relationships to each other on the yard, um, the camaraderie and the lack of othering and the lack of, you know, gang affiliation, you know, when they walk in, in our class, all that, all those boundaries dissolve and we're all just in, in a circle of, of healing. As you say, that is, we need to, we need to, we need circles every day. We need to all be in circles, especially well, not everybody, just everybody. I was going to say, especially people who are suffering from addiction because um, it happens, you're isolated when you're addicted and you just, it perpetuates itself. So if you feel connected, you know, those urges can can start abating. But healing in circles is, you know, I wish those family members could go into circles so that they could start exploring their own trauma. And one of the things I have vowed, you know, I have a 14-year-old and Although he does have, he's, he was in my womb, so he has some trauma because he was in my body and my body it was an anxiety machine. But, you know, trauma stops with me. Abuse stops with me. And I raise my hand every time. I'm raising my hand right now saying it. It's like, I pledge there's not going to be any abuse. I mean, no shame. I am, you touched on, and you know, this is something that I know for myself, you, when I was a child, I recognized how my experiences impacted my childhood and I couldn't wait to grow up because when you're a grown up, you know, life is better and you can move on and away from the experiences that you had, which is the way my mind was thinking. And then I grew up and I realized, oh no, uh, there are chains that are attached to me and I didn't really recognize it or realize it or address it until I had my own kids. And I realized how that trauma from my childhood was really impacting my ability to have a relationship with my children. You mentioned, you know, this co-regulation and, you know, these feelings of frustration. But how, when did you really recognize, you know, this hasn't improved or these experiences are still with me? Well, it all happened really fast. This like the trauma awareness happened. And then I just was like, oh, well, this is my behavior. And then I would see it. I would see it um, manifesting with my son the way I behaved with him because he has, you know, he's got testosterone. He's got erratic movements. 
and one of my big, one epiphany I had about two months ago, I was in the kitchen and it's always tense in the kitchen. I didn't know why it was so tense and, and I would get reactive. And then I realized that the kitchen was the place where my mother would really freak out on me because if I didn't, if I didn't cut the parsley small enough or whatever the, whatever, it was just tense in the kitchen mm -hmm. with my mother. And so I was transferring that onto my son. And once I saw that, it was like, okay. You know, I realized that even just being, you know, hypervigilant and kind of freaky that I've transferred some of my trauma to my son, but I'm working on bringing it down. I'm working on, you know, consciously going into the kitchen with him and whatever, whatever we create, it's, you know, letting him navigate through the, the space and not, you know, it, it, it definitely is a trigger center for me, but mm -hmm. that's just these little incremental um, adjustments have huge effect. But the other big one is like some, I remember freaking out. He was playing with my phone in the car and I just lost it. And, you know, I mean, I'm just so, I'm like so humiliated and filled like the shame thought just came up. But the minute I saw myself, I said, I'm so sorry. And, you know, what you did is it, it's nothing, it's nothing, but you know, it's being able to see that like as fast as you can and just take it back so that he can, he can co-regulate to a normal, calm prefrontal cortex, uh, activated mother. That's a sentence. <laughs> it is a sentence. <laughs> but that's what I keep making sure I go back to as I'm, as I'm healing myself and my family, because I mean, I feel kind of like I'm, a lot of the work for me has been done, but now, you know, there, there's been a lot of damage that I inflicted on my family and I've, I'm working on healing my relationship with my husband and my son, just, just hanging out with them. It's was so I'm, I'm a workaholic and it's impossible just to hang out because hanging out was nothing I learned how to do, you know, sit around and just be. I think that's beautiful though. You know, the fact that um, you're, you're simultaneously healing and helping your son understand his experiences, even just by saying sorry. Yeah. This was something I'm working through. And that's, I, I feel like a huge part of the piece of it as well. Absolutely. And it, God, just to all the parents who, who lose their, their brains, who lose their prefrontal cortex, we all do. Mm -hmm. Just when you land, just go back and say, I love you. I'm sorry. You know, mm -hmm. again, who cares if you're right? Who cares if he didn't do his homework? Who cares? The key here is to get that relationship back so that, there's trust and, and you can fall into each other. Something that I'm just in awe of, you have talked about so much of the trauma that you have experienced, Fritzi, personally. Um, and obviously, there is a huge amount of healing that has taken place. And, you know, the work that you're doing right now is a huge emotional investment. How do you take care of yourself and avoid this, you know, idea of, I, I love it. Dr. Gabor Mate says we can't have compassion fatigue because we can't give out too much compassion, but how do you avoid this, you know, vicarious trauma of getting, you know, re-triggered? Uh, yeah, no, I think I'm, I'm, I'm just winging it. But uh, one of the people I'm working with, she said, you have to zip yourself up before you read these letters. Cause um, mm. I'm, I've got ACE, I'm, I have ACE surveys around, we've received a surveys from around 45 prisons right now. And so each, each a survey is triggering because, you know, just when someone says they have 10, it's like, you know, 
I don't even think, you know, these 10 is just a number, but that's constant abuse on different levels and from different, you know, from angles, just, you know, absorbing these ACE scores is, is, can be a little triggering or traumatic, but um, I love that Gabor says we, you know, we have to be like compassion is just what we got to do now. This is, this is, Mm -hmm. this is the mandate actually. Um, So I do, I do like a symbolic zipping myself up when I read these letters and um, and I just keep crying. I mean, I cry every day. I, I bawled this morning after reading that letter um, about the man who lived in his urine. I just, I bawled just in, it's just, what are we doing? You know, he's so damaged. He has no tools to function in society. And then he's punished for the rest of his life in prison. He's 62 years old now. When you were a child and the experiences you had and knowing the feelings that come with all of that, what, what do you wish, you know, this idea of a community, we really need to help each other thrive because there are homes where children aren't given that opportunity. What do you wish you had in your childhood as support? Um, I'm really grateful for exactly the way it was, but if I'm creating, I wish my father um, chose me over his alcohol, you know, because I, I, I knew that the craving was there and as much as he loved me, there was just never that sense of really being seen and really being held by my father. And I wish my mother, um, as she was a dynamite woman, she was an incredible woman, but she was also haunted by, you know, being annihilated as a child. And I just wish that she'd had, she'd had that chance to be adored and loved Um, because then her daughters would have been, well, we're still extraordinary, but um, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I mean, I'm part of that perfection algorithm as well. Don't forget we're all perfect. And, um, you know, we've been trained to think that humility, I mean, I am humble too sometimes, um, (laughs) humility to the, to the point where we, demean ourselves or denounce ourselves is, is a false is false. Um, and being able to accept compliments and being able to, um, enjoy being appreciated is part of receiving. It's just as important as giving. And we place all the, all the weight on giving, but never, never enough weight on receiving and receiving is part of the cycle is part of it nourishes you and it feeds you and it gives you more strength to continue to love more. So, um, you know, don't deflect the love that's coming because it, it helps you love even more. Yeah. Even just you saying that I feel this discomfort when you say the love that comes to you, it's like this coping mechanism we have of, of deflecting it and saying, Nope, Nope. Bounce, bounce off, bounce off. Yeah. Well, you're part Canadian, right? Are you Canadian? I'm, I'm Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. That, I'll just, I'll just keep saying sorry. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, that's something Canada, Canada gets to work on when they, when they're ready to be magnificent. What would you say through everything that you've been through, um, what or who 
contributed to your resilience today? Um, I would say it's my mother and my father um, through their fog, through their fight and flight and literally their fight all the time. Um, they did stop every, every once in a while and notice me. Um, not to the point where um, I ever felt sated or I felt like I felt healed, but I felt like um, my mother kind of honored my moxie and my, um, my entrepreneurship and my father, he, you know, he was my champion, but, um, you know, I could see in his emails to me sometimes that he was drunk. I, you know, kids are hypervigilant about that. With their mm -hmm. parents. Um, so I would say, oh, you know, the message was always kind of, oh, thanks dad. But God, just, just one, one email where you're lucid would be great. Anyway, not to shame him. I love you, dad. Um, mm -hmm. But they did see me and because they saw themselves, they saw, they saw their, their own magnificence. And, mm. and it's my work to, to, to carry on our legacy, the horseman and Bernie's legacy. Bertie, I honestly just, I, I'm so grateful for your heart and for everything that you're doing and just following along and, like, as I said, you know, as someone who grew up in a home where addictions and the chaos that goes with that, mm -hmm. um, I know I remember very vividly at a very young age, you know, probably six or seven, um, initially really believing that when police came to our home or um, when my dad would be in prison and then released, which he often was, um, that you you had this assumption that they would have been supported, that we would have been supported to heal and help through the struggles that we were experiencing. But, you know, very quickly, I realized at a very early age that it hardens you and not heals you. So what I find to be so incredible about the work that you are doing is that you're not only educating the public about the impact of childhood adversity um, in, in incredibly powerful and meaningful ways, but, um, but you're also really humanizing the experiences and the people who often end up in prison um, and giving the men, women, and children and their families a space to learn and to grieve and to heal also. I just feel like it's such a huge package and I'm, I'm grateful for your time and the work that you're doing. So. Oh, thank you. you. Thank you so much, Agnes. I'm, it's an honor to serve. It really is. I say, you know, that old adage, you know, it's true. Just go out and serve. Is there any, you know, takeaway that you, you want to share with the best way to support you right now? And the Compassion Prison Project? Yeah. I mean, if, if you want to go to the website and donate or um, get involved, or if you want to join our letter writing team, there's so many men and women who just want to hear a good word. They want to be told that they, they matter. And um, writing letters is really is really a good place to start. And also just, um, just, a, just something to think about as you're going through your day is... Um, the violence that we we want to see we want to see the world a more harmonious and peaceful place but it really starts with us and to be kind to yourself and to look at the violence that that you perpetrate in your own life just just in a thought or just in a look or just in a slight um but it's violence that we're putting into the world into the field and let's be responsible for the violence that we're putting in and and, and shift it into love. Let's put some put love into the field so that we can really shift this paradigm soon. 
um, because we the world the really world really needs our help, and we all have the tools for it. 